Part One, Chapter One of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. Part One, Chapter One The New Lodging. In the pupils' room of the offices of Lucas and Enright, architects, Russell Square, Bloomsbury, George Edwin Cannon, an articled pupil, leaned over a large drawing board and looked up at Mr Enright, the head of the firm, who, with cigarette and stick, was on his way out after what he called a good day's work. It was past six o'clock on an evening in early July, 1901. To George's right was an open door leading to the principal's room, and to his left another open door leading to more rooms and to the staircase. The lofty chambers were full of lassitude, but round about George, who was working late, there floated the tonic vapour of conscious virtue. Haim, the factotum, could be seen and heard moving in his cubicle which guarded the offices from the stairs. In the rooms shortly to be deserted and locked up, and in the decline of the day, the three men were drawn together like survivors. "'I gather you're going to change your abode,' said Mr Enright, having stopped. "'Did Mr. Orgreave tell you, then?' George asked. "'Well, he didn't exactly tell me.' John Orgreave was Mr. Enright's junior partner, and for nearly two years, since his advent in London from the Five Towns, George had lived with Mr. and Mrs. Orgreave at Bedford Park. The Orgreaves, too, sprang from the Five Towns. John's people and George's people were closely entwined in the local annals. People in principle glanced discreetly at one another, exchanging in silence vague, malicious, unutterable critical verdicts upon both John Orgreave and his wife. "'Well, I am,' said George at length. "'Where are you going to?' "'Haven't settled a bit,' said George. "'I wish I could live in Paris.' "'Paris wouldn't be much good to you yet,' Mr. Enright laughed benevolently. "'I suppose it wouldn't. Besides, of course—' George spoke in a tone of candid, deferential acceptance— which flattered Mr. Enright very much, for it was the final proof of the prestige which the grizzled and wrinkled and peculiar fellow and member of the Council of the Royal Institute of British Architects had acquired in the estimation of that extremely independent, tossing sprig, George Edwin Cannon. Mr. Enright had recently been paying a visit to Paris, and George had been sitting for the intermediate examination. "'You can join me here for a few days after the exam, if you care to.' Mr. Enright had sent over. It was George's introduction to the continent, and the circumstances of it were almost ideal. For a week, the deeply experienced connoisseur of all the arts had had the fine, eager, responsive virgin mind in his power. Day after day, he had watched and guided it amid entirely new sensations. Never had Mr. Enright enjoyed himself more purely, and at the close he knew with satisfaction that he put Paris in a proper perspective for George, and perhaps saved the youth from years of groping misapprehension. As for George, all his preconceived notions about Paris had been destroyed or shaken. In the quadrangles of the Louvre, for example, Mr Enright, pointing to the under part of the stone bench that foots so much of the walls, had said, Look at that curve. Nothing else. No ecstasies about the sculptures of Jean Goujon and Carpeau, or about the marvellous harmony of the east façade. 
but a flick of the cane towards the half-hidden moulding. And George had felt with a thrill what an exquisite curve, and what an original curve, and what a modest curve that curve was. Suddenly, and magically, his eyes had been opened. Or it might have been a deceitful mist had rolled away, and the real Louvre had been revealed in its esoteric and soul-authentic beauty. "'Why don't you try Chelsea?' said Mr. Enright over his shoulder, proceeding towards the stairs. "'I was thinking of Chelsea.' "'You were?' Mr. Enright halted again for an instant. "'It's the only place in London where the structure of society is anything like Paris. Why, dash it, in the King's Road the grocers know each other's business.' Mr. Enright made the last strange remark to the outer door, and vanished. "'Funny cove,' George commented tolerantly to Mr. Hayne, who passed through the room immediately afterwards to his nightly task of collecting and inspecting the scattered instruments on the principal's august drawing-board. But Mr. Hayne, though possibly he smiled ever so little, would not compromise himself by an endorsement of the criticism of his employer. George was a mere incident in the eternal career of Mr. Hayne at Lucas and Enright's. When the factotum came back into the pupils' room, George stood up straight and smoothed his trousers and gazed admiringly at his elegant, bright socks. "'Let me see,' said George, in a very friendly manner. "'You live somewhere in Chelsea, don't you?' "'Yes,' answered Mr. Hayne. "'Whereabouts, if it isn't a rude question?' "'Well,' said Mr. Hayne, confidentially and benignantly, captivated by George's youthful charm, "'it's near the Redcliffe Arms.' He mentioned the Redcliffe Arms, as he might have mentioned the bank, Piccadilly Circus, or Gibraltar. Alexandra Grove, number eight. To tell you the truth, I own the house. The deuce you do? Yes. The leasehold, that is, of course. No freeholds knocking about loose in that district. George saw a new and unsuspected Mr. Hayne. He was impressed, and he was glad that he had never broken the office tradition of treating Mr. Hayne with a respect not usually accorded to factotums. He saw a property owner, a taxpayer, and a human being behind the spectacles of the shuffling, rather shabby, ceremonious familiar that pervaded those rooms daily from before ten till after six. He grew curious about a living phenomenon that hitherto had never awakened his curiosity. "'Were you really looking for accommodation?' demanded Mr. Hames suavely. George hesitated. "'Yes.' "'Perhaps I may have something that might suit you.' Events, disguised as mere words, seemed to George to be pushing him forward. "'I should like to have a look at it,' he said. He had to say it. There was no alternative. Mr. Hayne raised a hand. "'Any evening that happens to be convenient.' "'What about tonight, then?' "'Certainly,' Mr. Hayne agreed. For a moment George apprehended that Mr. Hayne was going to invite him to dinner. But Mr. Hayne was not going to invite him to dinner.' "'About nine, shall we say?' he suggested, with a courtliness softer even than usual. Later, George said that he would lock up the office himself and leave the key with the housekeeper. "'You can't miss the place,' said Mr. Hayne on leaving. "'It's between the workhouse and the Redcliffe.' 2. At the corner dominated by the Queen's Elm, which, on the great route from Piccadilly Circus to Putney, was a public house and halt, second only in importance to the Redcliffe Arms. Night fell earlier than it ought to have done, owing to a vast rain-cloud over Chelsea. A few drops descended, 
but so warm and so gently that they were not like real rain, and sentimentalists could not believe that they would wet. People, arriving mysteriously out of darkness, gathered sparsely on the pavements, lingered a few moments, and were swallowed by omnibuses that bore them obscurely away. At intervals, an individual got out of an omnibus, and adventured hurriedly forth, and was lost in the loo. The omnibuses, all white, trotted on an inward curve to the pavement, stopped while the conductor, with hand raised to the bell-string, murmured apathetically the names of streets and of public-houses, and then they jerked off again on an outward curve to the impatient double-ting of the bell. To the east was a high defile of hospitals, and to the west the workhouse tower faintly imprinted itself on the sombre sky. The drops of rain grew very large and heavy, and the travellers, instead of waiting on the curb, withdrew to the shelter of the wall of the Queen's Elm. George was now among the group, precipitated like the rest, as it were, out of the solution of London. George was of the age which does not admit rain, or which believes that it is immune from the usual consequences of exposure to rain. But advised, especially by women, to defend himself against the treacheries of the weather, he always protested confidently that he would be all right. Thus, with a stick and a straw hat, he would affront terrible dangers. It was a species of valour which the event often justified. Indeed, he generally was all right. But tonight, afoot on the way from South Kensington Station, in a region quite unfamiliar to him, he was intimidated by the slapping menace of the big drops. Reality faced him. His scared thought ran, Unless I do something at once, I shall get wet through. Impossible to appear drenched at old Hames. So he had abandoned all his pretenses to a magical invulnerability, and rushed under the eaves of the Queen's Elm to join the omnibus group. He did not harmonise with the omnibus group, being both too elegant and too high-spirited. His proper role in the circumstances would have been to jump into a hansom. But there were no empty hansoms, and moreover, for certain reasons of finance, he had sworn off hansoms until a given date. He regarded the situation as rather a lark, and he somehow knew that the group understood and appreciated and perhaps resented his superior and tolerant attitude. An omnibus rolled palely into the radiance of the Queen's Elm lamp, the horse's flanks and the lofty driver's apron gleaming with rain. He sprang towards the vehicle. The whole group sprang. Full inside, snapped the conductor inexorably. Ting, ting! It was gone, glimmering with its enigmatic load into the distance. George turned again to the wall, humiliated. It seemed wrong that the conductor should have included him with a knot of common omnibus travellers and late workers. The conductor ought to have differentiated. He put out a hand. The rain had capriciously ceased. He departed gaily and triumphantly. He was re-endowed with a magical invulnerability. The background of his mind was variegated. The incidents of the tremendous motor-car race from Paris to Berlin, which had finished nearly a week earlier, still glowed on it. And the fact that King Edward Seventh had driven in a car from Pall Mall to Windsor Castle in sixty minutes was beautifully present. Then he was slightly worried concerning the Mediterranean fleet. He knew nothing about it, but as a good citizen he suspected in idle moments, like a number of other good citizens, but all was not quite well with the Mediterranean fleet. As for the war, 
He had only begun to be interested in the war within the last six months, and already he was sick of it. He knew that the Boers had just wrecked a British military train, and his attitude towards such methods of fighting was rather severe and scornful. He did not regard them as war. However, the apparent permanence of the war was splendidly compensated by the victory of the brothers Dirty over the American lawn tennis champions in the gentlemen's doubles at Wimbledon. Who could have expected the brothers to win after the defeat of R.H. by Mr. Gore in the singles? George had most painfully feared that the Americans would conquer, and their overthrowing by the twin brothers indicated to George, who took himself for a serious student of affairs, that Britain was continuing to exist, and that the new national self-depreciative yearning for efficiency might possibly be rather absurd after all. In the midst of these and similar thoughts, and of innumerable minor thoughts about himself, in the very centre of his mind, and occupying nearly the whole of it, was the vast thought, the obsession of his own potential power and its fulfilment. George's egotism was terrific, and as right as any other natural phenomenon. He had to get on. Much money was included in his scheme, but simply as a by-product. He had to be a great architect, and, equally important, he had to be publicly recognised as a great architect, and recognition could not come without money. For him, the entire created universe was the means to his end. He would not use it unlawfully, but he would use it. He was using it as well as he yet knew how, and with an independence that was as complete as it was unconscious. In regard to matters upon which his instinct had not suggested a course of action, George was always ready enough to be taught. Indeed, his respect for an expert was truly deferential. But when his instinct had begun to operate, he would consult nobody and consider nobody, being deeply sure that infallible wisdom had been granted to him. Nor did experience seem to teach him. Thus, in the affair of a London lodging, though he was still two years from his majority and had no resources save the purse of his stepfather, Edwin Clayhanger, he decided to leave the Orgreaves without asking or even informing his parents. In his next letter home he would no doubt inform them, casually, of what he meant to do or actually had done, and if objections followed, he would honestly resent them. A characteristic example of his independence had happened when at the unripe age of seventeen he left the five towns for London. Upon his mother's marriage to Edwin Clayhanger, his own name had been informally changed for him to Clayhanger. But, a few days before the day of departure, he denounced that, as Clayhanger was not his own name, and that he preferred his own name, he should henceforth be known as Cannon, his father's name. He did not invite discussion. Mr. Clayhanger had thereupon said to him, privately, and as one man of the world to another, "'But you aren't really entitled to the name Cannon, Sonny?' "'Why? Because your father was what's commonly known as a bigamist, and his marriage with your mother was not legal. I thought I'd take this opportunity of telling you. You needn't say anything to your mother, unless, of course, you feel you must.' To which George replied, "'No, I won't. But if Cannon was my father's name, I think I'll have it all the same.' And he did have it. The bigamy of his father did not apparently affect him. Upon further inquiry, he learnt that his father might be alive or might be dead, but that if alive, he was in America. 
A few words from Mr Enright about Chelsea had sufficed to turn Chelsea into Elysium, paradise, almost into Paris. No other quarter of London was inhabitable by a rising architect. As soon as Hem had gone, George had begun to look up Chelsea in the office library, and, as Mr Enright happened to be an active member of the Society for the Survey of the Memorials of Greater London, the libraries served him well. In an hour and a half he had absorbed something of the historical topography of Chelsea. He knew that the Fulham Road, upon which he was now walking, was a boundary of Chelsea. He knew that the Queen's Elm public house had its name from the tradition that Elizabeth had once sheltered from a shower beneath an elm tree which stood at that very corner. He knew that Chelsea had been a village of palaces, and what was the function of the Thames in the magnificent life of that village. The secret residence of Turner in Chelsea, under the strange alias of Admiral Booth, excited George's admiration. He liked the idea of hidden retreats and splendid, fanciful pseudonyms. But the master figure of Chelsea for George was Sir Thomas More. He could see Sir Thomas More walking in his majestic garden by the river, with the king's arm round his neck, and Holbein close by, and respectful august prelates and a nagging wife in the background. And he could see Sir Thomas More taking his barge for the last journey to the tower, and Sir Thomas More's daughter coming back in the same barge with her father's head on board. Curious. He envied Sir Thomas More. Darn bad tower for a village of palaces, he thought, not of the Tower of London, but of the Tower of the Workhouse, which he was now approaching. He thought he could design an incomparably better tower than that. And he saw himself in the future, the architect of vast monuments, strolling in a grand garden of his own at evening, with other distinguished and witty persons. But there were high-sounding names in the history of Chelsea besides those of Moore and Turner. Not names of people. Cremorn and Ranelagh. Cremorn to the west and Ranelagh to the east. The legend of these vanished resorts of pleasure and vice stirred his longings and his sense of romantic beauty, especially Ranelagh with its rotunda. He wanted, when the time came, to be finely vicious, as he wanted to be everything. An architect could not be great without being everything. He projected himself into the rotunda, with its sixty windows, its countless refreshments boxes, its huge paintings, and the orchestra in the middle, and the expensive and naughty crowd walking round and round and round on the matting, and the muffled footsteps and the swish of trains on the matting, and the specious smiles and whispers, and the blare of the band, and the smell of the lamps and candles. Earl's Court was a poor, tawdry, unsightly thing after that. When he had passed under the workhouse tower, he came to a side street, which, according to Hame's description of the neighbourhood, ought to have been Alexandra Grove. The large lamp on the corner, however, gave no indication, nor in the darkness could any sign be seen on the blind wall of either of the corner houses in Fulham Road. Doubtless in daytime the street had a visible label, but the borough authorities evidently believed that night endowed the stranger with powers of divination. George turned, hesitant, down the mysterious gorge, which had two dim lamps of its own, and which ended in a high wall, whereat could be described unattainable trees, possibly the grove of Alexandra. Silence and a charmed stillness held the gorge, while in Fulham Road, not a hundred yards away, Omnibuses and an occasional hansom rattled along in an ordinary world. George soon decided that he was not in Alexandra Grove, 
on account of the size of the houses. He could not conceive Mr. Hame owning one of them. They stood lofty in the gloom, in pairs, secluded from the pavement by a stucco garden wall and low bushes. They were double-fronted, and their doors were at the summits of flights of blanched steps that showed through the bars of iron gates. They had three stories above a basement. Still, he looked for number eight. But, just as the street had no name, so the houses had no numbers. Number sixteen alone could be distinguished. It had figures on its faintly illuminated fanlight. He walked back, idly counting. Then, amid the curtained and shuttered facades, he saw, across the road, a bright beam from a basement. He crossed and peeped through a gate, and an interior was suddenly revealed to him. Near the window of a room sat a young woman bending over a table. A gas jet on a bracket in the wall, a few inches higher than her head and a foot distant from it, threw a strong radiance on her face and hair. The luminous, living picture, framed by the window in blackness, instantly entranced him. All the splendid images of the past faded and were confuted and invalidated and destroyed by this intense reality so present and so near to him. Nevertheless, for a moment he thought of her as the daughter of Sir Thomas More. She was drawing. She was drawing with her whole mind and heart. At intervals, scarcely moving her head, she would glance aside at a paper to her left on the table. She seemed to search it, to drag some secret out of it, and then she would resume her drawing. She was neither dark nor fair. She was comely, perhaps beautiful. She had beautiful lips, and her nose behind the nostrils joined the cheek in a lovely contour, like a tiny bulb. Yes, she was superb. But what mastered him was less her fresh physical charm than the rapt and extreme vitality of her existing. He knew from her gestures and the tools on the table that she could be no amateur. She was a professional. He thought, Chelsea, marvellous place, Chelsea. He ought to have found that out long ago. He imagined Chelsea full of such pictures, the only true home of beauty and romance. Then the impact of a single idea startled his blood. He went hot, he flushed. He had tingling sensations all down his back and in his legs and in his arms. It was as though he had been caught in a dubious situation. Though he was utterly innocent, he felt as though he had something to be ashamed of. The idea was, she resembled old Haim, facially. Ridiculous idea. But she did resemble old Haim, particularly in the lobal termination of the nose, and in the lips, too, and there was a vague general resemblance. Absurd! was a fancy. He would not have cared for anybody to be watching him then, to surprise him watching her. He heard unmistakable footsteps on the pavement. A policeman darkly approached. Policemen at times can be very apposite. George moved his gaze and looked with admirable casualness around. Officer, is this Alexandra Grove? His stepfather had taught him to address all policemen as officers. It is, sir. Oh, well, which is number eight? There's no numbers. You couldn't be much nearer to it, sir, said the policeman dryly, and pointed to a large number, fairly visible, on the wide gatepost. George had not inspected the gatepost. Oh, thanks. He mounted the steps, and in the thick gloom of the portico fumbled for the bell, 
and rang it. He was tremendously excited and expectant and apprehensive and puzzled. He heard rain flatly spitting in big drops on the steps. He had not noticed till then that it had begun again. The bell jangled below. The light in the basement went out. He flushed anew. He thought, trembling. She's coming to the door herself. Three. It had occurred to me some time ago, said Mr. Hay, that if ever you should be wanting rooms, I might be able to suit you. Really, George murmured. After having been shown into the room by the young woman, who had at once disappeared, he was now recovering from the nervousness of that agitating entry and resuming his normal demeanour of an experienced and well-balanced man of the world. He felt relieved that she had gone, and yet he regretted her departure extremely and hoped against fear that she would soon return. Yes, said Mr. Hayne, as it were triumphantly, like one who had whispered to himself during long years, the hour will come. The hour had come. Mr. Hayne was surprising to George. The man seemed much older in his own parlour than at the office, his hair thinner and greyer, and his face more wrinkled. But the surprising part of him was that he had a home, and was master in it, and possessed interests other than those of the firm of Lucas and Enright. George had never, until that day, conceived the man apart from Russell Square. And here he was, smoking a cigarette in an easy chair, and wearing red Morocco slippers, and being called Father, by a really stunning creature in a thin white blouse and a blue skirt. The young girl, opening the front door, had said, Do you want to see father? And instantly the words were out, George had realised that she might have said, Did you want to see father? In the idiom of the shop girl or clerk, and that if she had said did, he would have been gravely disappointed and hurt. But she had not. Of course she had not. Of course she was incapable of such a locution. And it was silly of him to have thought otherwise, even momentarily. She was an artist entirely different from the blonde and fluffy Mrs. John Orgreave. And a good thing, too, for Mrs. John, with her eternal womanishness, had got on his nerves. Miss Hayne was without doubt just as much a lady, and probably a jolly sight more cultured, in the true sense. Yet Miss Hayne had not in the least revealed herself to him in the hall, as she indicated the depository for his hat and stick, and opened the door of the sitting-room. She had barely smiled. Indeed, she had not smiled. She had not mentioned the weather. On the other hand, she had not been prim or repellent. She had revealed nothing of herself. Her one feat had been to stimulate mightily his curiosity and his imagination concerning her, rampant enough even before he entered the house. The house, what he saw of it, suited her and set her off, and, as she was different from Mrs. John, so was the house different from the polished, conventional abode of Mrs. John at Bedford Park. To George's taste it knocked Bedford Park to smithereens, in the parlour, for instance, an oak chest, an oak settee, an oak gate table, one tapestried easy chair, several rush-bottomed chairs, a very small brass fender, a self-coloured wallpaper of warm green, two or three old engravings in maplewood or tarnished gilt frames, several small portraits in maplewood frames, brass candlesticks on the mantelpiece and no clock, self-coloured brown curtains across the windows, two windows opposite each other at either end of the long room, sundry rugs on the dark stained floor, and so on. Not too much furniture, and not too much symmetry either. An agreeable and original higgledy-piggledyness. 
The room was lighted by a fairly large oil lamp, with a paper shade hand-painted in a design of Cupid's. Delightful, personal design. Rough, sketchy, adorable. She had certainly done it. George sat on the oak settle, fronting the old man in the easy chair. It was a hard, smooth oak settle. It had no upholstering nor cushion. But George liked it. "'May I smoke?' asked George. "'Please do, please do,' said Mr. Hayne, who was smoking a cigarette himself with courteous hospitality. However, it was a match and not a cigarette that he offered to George, who opened his own dandiacal case. "'I stayed rather late at the office tonight,' said George, as he blew out those great clouds with which young men demonstrate to the world that the cigarette is actually lighted. And, as Mr. Hame, who was accustomed to the boastings of article pupils, made no comment, George proceeded, lolling on the settle and showing his socks. "'You know, I like Chelsea. I've always had a fancy for it.' He was just about to continue cosmopolitanly. "'It's the only part of in London that's like Paris, the people in the King's Road, etc.' Unfortunately, he remembered that Mr. Hame must have overheard these remarks of Mr. Enright, and ceased rather awkwardly. Whereupon Mr. Hames suggested that he should see the house, and George said eagerly that he should like to see the house. "'We've got one bedroom more than we want,' Mr. Hayne remarked as he led George to the hall. "'Oh, yes,' said George politely. The hall had a small bracket lamp which Mr. Hayne unhooked, and then he opened a door opposite to the door of the room which they had quitted. "'Now this is a bedroom,' said he, holding the lamp high. George was startled. A ground-floor bedroom would have been unthinkable at Bedford Park. Still, in a flat. Moreover, the idea had piquancy. The bedroom was sparsely furnished. Instead of a wardrobe, it had a corner curtained off with cretonne. A good-sized room, said Mr. Hayne. Very, said George. Two windows, too, like the drawing-room. Then they went upstairs to the first floor and saw two more bedrooms, each with two windows. One of them was Miss Hayne's. There was a hat hung on the looking-glass, and a table with a few books on it. They did not go to the second floor. The staircase to the second floor was boarded up at the point where it turned. "'That's all there is,' said Mr. Hame on the landing. "'The studio people have the second floor, but they don't use my front door.' He spoke the last words rather defiantly. "'I see,' said George untruthfully, for he was mystified. But the mystery did not trouble him. There was no bathroom. And this did not trouble him either, though at Bedford Park he could never have seriously considered a house without a bathroom. "'You could have your choice of ground floor or first floor,' said Mr. Hayne, confidentially, still on the landing. He moved the lamp about, and the shadows moved accordingly on the stairs. "'Oh, I don't mind in the least,' George answered. "'Whichever would suit you best.' "'We could give you breakfast and use of sitting-room,' Mr. Hayne proceeded in a low tone. "'But no other meals.' "'That'll be all right,' said George cheerfully. "'I often dine in town. "'Like that I can get in a bit of extra work at the office, you see.' Uh, "'Except on Sundays,' Mr. Hayne corrected himself. "'You want your meals on Sundays, of course. "'But I expect you're out a good deal, what with one thing or another.' "'Oh, I am,' George concurred. "'The place was perfect, and he was determined to establish himself in it. "'Nothing could balk him. "'A hitch would have desolated him completely.' "'I may as well show you the basement while I'm about it,' said Mr. Hayne. "'Do,' said George ardently. They descended. The host was very dignified, as invariably at the office, and his accent never lapsed from the absolute correctness of an educated Londoner. 
His deportment gave distinction and safety, even to the precipitous and mean basement stairs, which were of stone, worn as by the knees of pilgrims in a crypt. All kinds of irregular pipes ran about along the ceiling of the basement. Some were covered by ancient layers of wallpaper, and some were not. Some were painted yellow, and some were painted grey, and some were not painted. Mr. Hamer exhibited first the kitchen. George saw a morsel of red amber behind black bars, a white deal table, and a black cat crouched on a corner of the table, a chair and a tea-cloth drying over the back thereof. He liked the scene. It reminded him of the five towns, and showed reassuringly, if he needed reassurance, which he did not, that all houses are the same at heart. Then Mr. Hame, flashing a lamp-ray on the coal-hole and the area door as he turned, crossed the stone passage into the other basement room. "'This is our second sitting-room,' said Mr. Hame, entering. There she was, at work, wrapped, exactly as George had seen her from the outside. But now he saw the right side of her face instead of the left. It was wonderful to him that within the space of a few minutes he should have developed from an absolute stranger to her into an acquaintance of the house, walking about in it, peering into its recesses, disturbing its secrets, which were hers. But she remained as mysterious, as withdrawn and intangible as ever. And then she shifted round suddenly on the chair, and her absorbed, intent face softened into a most beautiful, simple smile, a smile of welcome, an astonishing and celestial change. She was not one of those queer girls, as perhaps she might have been. She was a girl of natural impulses. He smiled back, uplifted. "'My daughter designs bookbindings,' said Mr. Hame. "'Happens to be very busy tonight on something urgent.' He advanced towards her, George following. "'Awfully good,' George murmured enthusiastically, and quite sincerely, though he is not at all in a condition to judge the design. "'Strange that he should come to the basement of an ordinary stock-sized house in Alexandra Grove to see bookbindings in the making.' This was a design for a boy's book. He had possessed many such books. But it had never occurred to him that the gay bindings of them were each the result of individual human thought and labour. He pulled at his cigarette. There was a the sound of pushing and rattling outside. "'What's that?' exclaimed Mr. Hayne. "'It's the area door. I bolted it. I dare say it's Mrs. Lobley,' said the girl indifferently. Mr. Hayne moved sharply. "'Why did you bolt it, Marguerite?' No, I'll go myself. He picked up the lamp, which he had put down, and shuffled quickly out in his red Morocco slippers, closing the door. Marguerite. Yes, it suited her, and it was among the most romantic of names. It completed the picture. She now seemed to be listening and waiting, her attention on the unseen area door. He felt shy, and yet very happy alone with her. Voices were distinctly heard. Who was Mrs. Lobley? Was Mr. Hame a little annoyed with his daughter, and was Marguerite exquisitely defiant? Time hung. The situation was slightly awkward, he thought, and it was obscure, alluring. He stood there below the level of the street, shut in with those beings unknown, provocative, and full of half-divined implications. And all Chelsea was around him, and all London around Chelsea. "'Father won't be a moment,' said the girl. "'It's only the charwoman.' Oh, that's quite all right, he answered effusively, and turning to the design. The outlining of that lettering fairly beats me, you know. Not really. I get that from father, of course. Mr. Hayne was famous in the office as a letterer. 
She sat idly, glancing at her own design, her plump small hands lying in the blue lap. George compared her, unspeakably to her advantage, with the kind, coarse young woman at the chop-house, whom he had asked to telephone to the Orgreaves for him, and for whom he had been conscious of a faint portion. "'I can't colour it by gaslight,' said Margaret Hayne. "'I shall have to do that in the morning.' He imagined her at work again early in the morning. Within a week or so, he might be living in this house with this girl. He would be watching her life. Seducing prospect, scarcely credible. He remembered having heard when he first went to Lucas and Enright's that old Hame was a widower. Do excuse me, said Mr. Hame, urgently apologetic, reappearing. A quarter of an hour later, George had left the house, having accepted Mr. Hame's terms without the least argument. In five days, he was to be an inmate of number eight Alexandra Grove. The episode presented itself to him as a vast romantic adventure, staggering and enchanting. His luck continued, for the rain cloud was spent. He got into an Earl's Court bus. The dimly perceived travellers in it seemed all of them, in a new sense, to be romantic and mysterious. Yes, he thought, I did say good night to her, but I didn't shake hands. End of part one, chapter one.